You're listening to KXRY Portland at 107.1 and 91.1 FM and KXRWLP Vancouver at 99.9 FM. Streaming online everywhere at xray.fm. From the Center for Investigative Reporting and PRX, this is Reveal. I'm Al Letson. This is what Standing Rock is known for. One tribe's fight against an oil pipeline that became a national debate over land, water, and energy. Water is life! But before the clashes with police and the cameras, it started like this. We just knew that we weren't going to stand for it. And so that's how everything started. Young activists took their protest against the pipeline all the way from North Dakota to the White House on foot. On my average day, I'd run 10 miles every day. How did a group of kids start a national movement? And what will happen to them now that the battle is lost? Today on Reveal. But first, this news. Support for X-Ray FM comes from Bridge City Cleaning Service, a local company providing custom cleaning to hundreds of homes in the greater Portland area. More information at bridgecitycleaning.com or by phone at 
From the Center for Investigative Reporting in PRX, this is Reveal. I'm Al Letson. Just a few days after Donald Trump took office, he signed a memo that pushed forward a pipeline project that the Obama administration had put on hold. This is with respect to the construction of the Dakota Access Pipeline. Afterwards, Trump said he didn't think it was such a big deal. I don't even think it was controversial. You know, I proved him. I haven't even heard. I haven't had one call from anybody saying, oh, that was a terrible thing you did. But for Alice Brown Otter, it was a terrible thing. And just a few weeks later, in early March, she was getting ready to take her complaint to the president. So you still won't see this part right here because I messed up on it. That purple looks nice on there. Alice is sewing ribbons into a blue polka dot skirt with her mom and some friends. It's evening in Bismarck, North Dakota. The next morning, she'll leave at 4 a.m. for Washington, D.C. to march against the pipeline. Alice is tall, slim, with long, dark hair and big brown eyes. And she's 13 years old. Try to capture Alice getting frustrated. Yeah. Oh, mom. Mom. Alice is a member of the Standing Rock Sioux Tribe. This tribe was all over the news last year because they were the ones fighting the Dakota Access Pipeline. It was set to cross just north of their reservation. The tribe said building the pipeline there would disturb a sacred area where their ancestors lived and where they're now buried, and that an oil spill will contaminate their water. Over the course of months, thousands of people joined protest camps near the Missouri River. Now, Alice is heading to another protest against Dakota Access, this time in Washington. Time is running out. I think they're saying that the oil is going to start transporting through in a couple of days or something. So I'm afraid. A few days later, serious and unsmiling in her ribbon skirt, Alice stands right next to the tribal chairman as he speaks to the crowd in front of the White House. We are all Americans, and, we, and above all, we are all human beings. We deserve to be included. We deserve to be respected. Despite those words, the pipeline went into service this week. It'll carry oil from North Dakota's Bakken region more than 1,000 miles down to Illinois. Dakota Access can move about half of the Bakken's daily output at a lower cost than transporting it by rail. State regulators say that this pipeline will soon make North Dakota's oil competitive with Texas crude. After all the protests and public outcry, How did the pipeline go through? And what does it mean for the young people on the reservation who led the effort to stop it? Lee Patterson of the Public Media Collaboration Inside Energy is going to take us inside the protest movement and show us how it all unfolded. But first, we'll start with a look at what's happened since Trump restarted the project. The road to the Standing Rock Sioux Reservation is deserted. It's mid-March, a week after Alice's trip to Washington. The Missouri River is on my left, wide and frozen. The open prairie on my right is brown and also frozen. I look for the tribal radio station, KLND. 
Alright, that's not it. To, uh, to start fighting the Dakota Access Pipeline. And what they wanted to do is... They of all things, the they're talking about Dakota Access. If we still have money and the oil's going to be going underneath, what are we going to do strategically as a tribe when it breaks? So you know, I'm cruising I'm along, trying not to speed too much. And the next thing I know, I'm stopped. And there's a line of cars in front of me. It's a police checkpoint. I'm waiting, listening to some tunes. Keep behind the pilot car the next nine miles. Don't stop. Stay with the group. Um, don't stop your car. Don't slow down. Just don't get out of your car. Okay. All right. Why, why is that? Why? Yeah. Are you familiar with any of the... The Dakota Access stuff? Yep. The... It's open, partially open. Security's tight because back in October, protesters lit vehicles on fire on top of a nearby bridge and law enforcement closed the road. The road is now reopened, but you have to follow a pilot car. I've seen this area on the news so many times, but it looks completely different now. In the distance, I can see some dark pipes lined up at the pipeline construction site. Then we pass what's left of the protest camps, just a couple of tents in a muddy spot near the river. Dakota Access turned life on this quiet rural reservation upside down. One way I'd monitored everything that was going on was by following young protesters on Twitter and Facebook. Now, months later, I hear a group of kids are still getting together on a regular basis, so I drive to their meeting. Gosh, I just ask that you guide our thoughts and guide our actions and that you help us to continue to bring goodness into our homes and into our community. The Standing Rock Youth Council opens with a prayer. The group does things like hold cleanup days and dinners to honor tribal elders. Today, they're meeting in a loud, echoing community center in Wakpala, South Dakota. My name is Tokata Ionize. And you are? The Standing Rock Youth Council president. And you were a little late. And I was a little late. <laughs> Because my mom got lost. Takata is 13. I ask her and her friend about today's agenda. Um, we have to talk about the color of our t-shirts and raising um, money for uh, headstone for a girl that passed away like last year. Yeah. This young woman who passed away had been part of an online video campaign against Dakota Access. So she was in that... Um, respect our water video, like at the very, very beginning. And was hit by a car last year. How much money are we thinking about raising? Members of the group suggest having a bake sale or holding an event with a donation box to pay for the headstone. Life is hard for a lot of these kids. Around half of the families on the Standing Rock Sioux Reservation live in poverty. Unemployment is around 35%, though the tribe says the real number is much higher. And if you look at things like lifespan, drunk driving accidents, and adult obesity, this reservation is one of the unhealthiest parts of the Dakotas. Now, it may be a little counterintuitive, but Takata says that considering all of these factors, the Dakota Access Pipeline made a lot of positive improvements to our communities. Those camps and this whole movement gave our youth something to do. That's occupied time where they could have been drinking, doing drugs. And so I think it was a really positive movement for a really long time. A movement, she says, started by those young people. But how did a group of kids start a national protest? 
I decide to check this story out with the actual tribal council, ask the adults if this is really how it all went down. So I go to Dana Yellowfat's house. He's a tribal council member. I meet his stepdaughter, 17-year-old Aliyah Eagle. Introduce yourself to Lee. She listens while Dana and I chat, and we start with how this all began. Back in January of 2016, pipeline construction broke ground in North Dakota. Soon after... A group of youth approached us and asked for help. So it was young people, it was, I mean, it was teenagers who really took the first action. Yeah. Teenagers all stepped forward. They, they wanted help. They wanted our help as elected officials to bring awareness to as many people as they could. When you think back to the early days, could you ever have imagined how big this was going to get? Never in my wildest dreams did I ever think that Standing Rock would be put on such a large world stage. And it was the kids who put it there. So we're going to let them tell you the protest story going back to the beginning, starting with Alice Brown Otter. She's the girl who was sewing her skirt and getting ready to go to D.C. That wasn't her first trip to Washington. Last summer, she and a bunch of others, they ran there. On my average day, I'd run 10 miles every day. I'm tired just thinking about that. They ran, walked, and drove all the way from Standing Rock to talk with officials from the federal government. We had a meeting with the Army Corps of Engineers. And what was the purpose of the meeting? Um, of how much our water means to us and how we get treated differently because we're just like a background and a shadow of everyone else. And we talked about why we ran that far. And, and I remember some, a couple of the people It brought tears to their eyes, and we knew that it meant something to them. Another thing tribal youth did, they set up the very first protest camp with help from a local landowner. Aaliyah Eagle missed two months of school to be there. She took this video sitting in front of a bonfire. From hearing everybody, like, just joking around and laughing at night while I go play hand games and stuff and just like laying out in the middle of all the camps and watching the stars and just listening to all the round dances that they're having it was really like serene like but it wasn't long before thousands started pouring into Standing Rock from all over the country and the world the protest camps became a symbol of native empowerment and fighting big oil and the federal government. Keep it in the soil! Keep it in the soil! In September, the Obama administration ordered pipeline construction near the Missouri River to stop while it reconsidered the legality of the project. Here's Youth Council President Takata Iron Eyes again. See, the pipeline was originally supposed to be routed through Bismarck, North Dakota, our capital, which is a largely white community. The pipeline company changed the route for several reasons, including that the first route was longer. 
And if there were a leak, it could have contaminated the municipal water supply for a city of about 60,000 versus a reservation of 8,000. Yeah, because everything man-made breaks at some point. The CEO of the company building that pipeline, Kelsey Warren, responded to these concerns in an interview last year with the PBS NewsHour. Energy transfer is doing the very best we can. We're complying with all the laws. And, and I just think the likelihood of a spill into Lake Oahe is just extremely remote. He's right. Pipelines are generally considered to be the safest way to transport crude compared to rail or truck. Nearly all the oil moved by pipeline in the U.S. arrives at its destination just fine. But that fraction of a percent that's spilled can have devastating effects. Once the pipeline was rerouted, the Army Corps of Engineers was required to consult with the tribe. In court documents, it lists many dates when it contacted the tribe, or tried to, and just never heard back. But the Standing Rock Sioux say when they did talk to the Army Corps, nobody listened. You need to get out the pickup and you need to go south. You're going to get sprayed with pepper. By the fall of last year, Police were clashing with protesters, using tasers, tear gas, and water cannons. Some protesters blocked roads and railroad tracks. Over 700 people were arrested over the course of the protests. And the Obama administration was letting it all play out while it decided whether or not to grant a key permit needed to build under the river. And then, on December 4th, a turning point. The Corps of Engineers is going to deny the easement The Army Corps of Engineers announced it would not grant that permit, choosing instead to launch a more thorough environmental review. Aaliyah Eagle, the stepdaughter of council member Dana Yellowfat, was there. We were just like sitting there and then all of a sudden we heard war hooping and stuff and everybody was like running up to the top of the hill and I'm like, what the heck's going on? And we hear that the easement was denied. And everybody was full-on war hooping, and we were just, like, singing and having fun. This was a huge deal. President Obama had come through. For people here, Obama was making good on a commitment he'd made to help the tribe before Dakota Access was even on the radar. People of Standing Rock... See, back in 2014, Obama visited Standing Rock. It was his first trip to a reservation as president, and it was when his connection to Indian country turned from intellectual to emotional, as one Obama advisor put it to me. And it was meeting with several young people that did it. Kendrick Eagle was one of them. So you call him Barack? Yeah, we call him Barack, yeah. He's, he's a pretty cool guy, man. Like, What was it like when you walked in? It was like looking at... Like he was plastic, you know, like, this guy real, you know, and it was just insane, like, to see him come in. Kendrick told Obama his story. He's 24 years old and takes care of his four younger stepbrothers. Kendrick's dad had died, and his stepmom started using drugs. Things at home had gotten out of hand. With nobody to watch his brothers, they were roaming around the reservation at night looking for their mom. Other people abusing them, touching them, and spanking them and stuff. They were sleeping on couch cushions on the floor. In 2013, Kendrick went from brother to parent. He got custody and moved them to Bismarck so that he could go to college. Kendrick remembers Obama's reaction. He had tears in his eyes, him and Michelle, and uh, after hearing all of our stories. Six months later, 
Obama spoke about that meeting to tribal leaders at the White House. One young man was raising his four little brothers by himself. He said the Standing Rock youth reminded him of his own daughters. Just as smart, just as hopeful, just as beautiful. But at their core, there was a, a nagging doubt that they would have the opportunities that my daughters had. And nothing gets me more frustrated than when I hear that. Following this speech, the White House launched projects supporting Native schools and youth leadership and released a report on the challenges they face. The kids on Standing Rock felt like things were happening. Right there, it gave us a spark, like, man, we got, we got the president, got our back, you know, and we got all these programs. All of this really affected Kendrick Eagle, and it affected the president, too. We walked away shaken. Because some of these kids were carrying burdens no young person should ever have to carry, and it was heartbreaking. One of those burdens is suicide. Everyone on Standing Rock has been touched by it in some way. Here's tribal council member Dana Yellowfat. One of the biggest things and, and the biggest fears that I have is our youth taking their own lives. And it's happened a lot on Standing Rock. It was a national story. That's what we were known for. According to the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, suicide rates for young Native Americans are much higher than rates for other races and ethnicities, especially for young Native American men. On Standing Rock, a decade ago, there was a cluster of suicides. Over the course of a year, at least 10 young people took their own lives. Local newspapers reported that over 280 tried. Suicide has continued to be a problem. I ask Aaliyah Eagle if she ever worries about that stuff. Well, when I was younger, my cousin, she committed suicide. And it was like, it was really hard for me because we were really close. And we used to like live here together for a while. And then three days after that, my brother was murdered. And for a while there, after all that happened, I didn't really want anything to do with anybody. And I couldn't be in a public setting for a really long time or for even a short time without like feeling like the world was gonna crash on me. Being part of the pipeline protests, that changed something for her. Like, oh, I'm sorry for saying like so much. I'm just trying to find the right words for this. All I can really say is that it was pretty amazing and it really helped me gain people skills and just to actually enjoy being in a public setting again. All around the reservation, I heard so many stories like this. Drug addicts getting clean, alcoholics quitting drinking, depression and anxiety going away, and young people reconnecting with long-lost relatives. Monique Runnels is the wellness director on Standing Rock. She collects suicide-related data on a weekly basis and says that she's seen a change in the numbers. In the very beginning of like when camp first started, we did see like quite a significant decrease in the number of like referrals and attempts and ideations and all of that. Meaning suicidal thoughts. And there are other factors on the reservation, of course. Education efforts around youth suicide and the hiring of more mental health care professionals. Monique wouldn't share those numbers with me. The tribe doesn't allow it. But she hopes this change will last.
It's been about a year since the fight against Dakota Access got going. The young people who were so immersed in the protests are moving on with their lives, but they've changed. What I found in spending time with these kids is that you really cannot overstate what the runs, the protests, the TV cameras, you can't overstate the impact of all that. Here's Aaliyah Eagle again. That would be cool to look back on and think, wow, I was really one of those people that was in there that was actually helping. And even though I only have a small part in this, it's a really big pride to actually be a part of it. Aaliyah is starting to think about college. She wants to be a veterinarian. You know what you'd write your essay about? Mm-hmm. I think I'd write about my life and like how it is to be Native American. It's a beautiful but hard way of life. 13-year-old Alice Brown Otter, the girl who ran to Washington, D.C., is having a hard time with how the whole thing ended. Yeah, um, when we passed by the pipeline this morning, it just brought like flashbacks of how it used to be and when the movement first started, like the good feeling and when it was just innocent and it was really prayerful and there was no harm and violence going on because the youth started it and the youth wanted it a certain way. And then the flashback of the macing came and not just put bad medicine on the movement. Tokata Iron Eyes, president of the Standing Rock Youth Council, the one who was talking about the headstone at their meeting, she's going to continue her fight. The group just hosted its annual youth conference earlier this month. Hundreds of kids from other reservations were there. Our communities have such a hard time, but we don't want to be victims anymore because we've been victims for a really long time. And so I think now with this generation, with the youth, we're just trying to pick ourselves up and start over and live in a good way. Our story was produced by Lee Patterson from the public media collaboration Inside Energy. They recently finished a TV documentary on tribes and energy development called Beyond Standing Rock. The Standing Rock Sioux tribe is not giving up. They're still suing the federal government to stop the Dakota Access Pipeline. They argue that communication about the project, known as consultation, was flawed and that the government didn't take their concerns seriously. In Canada, tribes are also fighting pipelines. When we come back, the story of one tribe that's arguing the government there has to listen to them because the land is still legally theirs. That's next on Reveal from the Center for Investigative Reporting and PRX. Support for X-Ray FM comes from our listeners as well as Brass Tack Sandwiches, providing house-made ingredients and responsibly sourced sandwiches to meat lovers and vegans alike. Brass Tacks is located on North Vancouver and Fremont. More information online at BrassTackSandwiches.com.
From the Center for Investigative Reporting in PRX, this is Reveal. I'm Al Ledson. The fight against the Dakota Access Pipeline attracted a flood of people to the Standing Rock protest camp on the prairie. Some even came from other countries. So this was the big controversy in Standing Rock, was drilling under the river. That's Kanahus Manuel. We're back near her home in Canada, on the banks of the Thompson River near Kamloops, British Columbia. Kanahus joined the protest at Standing Rock, and her Chevy Suburban still has South Dakota plates. You can see the sign right here. The under underwater pipeline crossing. In Canada, tribes are called First Nations, and Kanahus belongs to the Shuswap Nation. Now that she's back home, she's planning a protest in her own backyard, but this one will be a little different. The Trans Mountain Pipeline is already in the ground. It's been there for 60 years, but its owner, a company in Houston called Kinder Morgan, wants to put another, bigger pipeline next to it. To stop them, Kanahus wants to set up traditional villages along the pipeline route. What we want to really establish is challenging the provincial jurisdiction over our territory by occupying and asserting our own title to our territory by living and occupying on our land. Challenging jurisdiction, asserting our title. For her, this fight isn't just about stopping a pipeline. It's about staking a claim to the land for good. Because unlike almost everywhere else in North America, Native people in this province never signed over this land to the government. A lot of Native people will take pride in that all throughout so-called British Columbia, is that we've never ceded or surrendered our territory. There is no treaty signed within our nation. That might sound like a long shot, but courts in Canada have recently said that First Nations have a big say in what happens on their land. Reporter Patrick Michaels has a story of a First Nation near Vancouver that's hoping to use that momentum to kill the Trans Mountain Project. We sit right on the inlet. That's where our first grandmother came from. And we inhabited this body of water. We're people of the inlet. That's Charlene Alec. She's a council member for the Tsleil-Waututh First Nation. It's a little before sunset, cold and windy, We're looking out across the Burrard Inlet. She's bundled up against the wind. When she speaks, she has a calm, commanding kind of presence. We're walking across smooth rocks and shells, or midden, basically the remains of ancient Tsleil-Waututh food scraps. See the bank here? It's full of shell midden, and that's that's proof that our ancestors lived here, cooked here, and ate here, um, and the midden has been... Um, slowly eroded away by all the tankers that have um, come in. We have about 60 tankers a year, and they're proposing over 400 tankers a year. And those ships would be loading up with oil just across the water from the reservation. The new pipeline would triple the output coming from Alberta's oil sands and open it up to markets in Asia. Charlene hopes they don't get the chance. She comes from a long line of what she calls modern-day warriors. Thank you for helping me to become a warrior. That's her grandfather, Dan George. He was the Tsleil-Waututh chief in the 50s and 60s, and then became a Hollywood actor. He had that famous line in the movie Little Big Man. Come out and fight. It is a good day to die. Dan's son, Chief Leonard George, put the Tsleil-Waututh in the construction and tourism business in the early 90s. 
Charlene says their success has made them more self-sufficient than most First Nations. They're building homes here today, big condos with a pool and waterfalls and a view of the inlet. It's prime Vancouver real estate, and it brings in a lot of money. An oil spill would ruin it. When the Tsleil-Waututh first heard the pipeline expansion was in the works back in 2012, it was a non-starter, even when the company offered them money. We um, reached out to our community and everybody just saw no huge benefits, even though there was millions of dollars um, offered. They got one chance to object, and they took it. In 2014, regulators held a hearing near Vancouver. Testimony was limited to just a few minutes, and they couldn't talk directly to company officials. This process is a flawed process, not just for the First Nations, but for every citizen in this province. You know, there's a time when you got to get up off your couch and turn off your remote and turn off your TV games and stand up for something. Now I'm telling all of you, you guys, warrior up, for God's sake. But not every First Nation on the pipeline route is against it. Far from the city, where jobs are scarce, the company's money is hard to pass up. In Kamloops, in the mountains a few hours north of Vancouver, I visit the man who signed the very first deal with Kinder Morgan. I saw a, um, a photo in the museum of uh, Joe Laborde. Yeah, uh, it's your uncle? Yeah. yeah. Michael Laborde used to be the chief of the Whispering Pines Clinton Indian Band. He's a big guy in his early 50s, pretty much always has a black cowboy hat. Rodeo runs in his family. His uncle was a Bronco rider. Michael is a little more sane. He's a calf roper. It's, it's an expensive hobby, is yeah, what it is. That's for sure. Yeah. As good as I was in the championships that I won, I never made money. Today, Michael is a business advisor. He helps First Nations find ways to make money by working within the system. And that's pretty much what he did when people from Kendra Morgan came asking for his support. You know, there wasn't a do you approve of this pipeline question because... They would never ask that. They asked about our thoughts because we don't have the right to say no. We can say no, but it would come with no benefits. This all happened a few months before the Canadian courts stopped a timber project because of opposition from a First Nation. For tribal leaders, the ruling suggested that consultation wasn't enough. They needed to give their consent for a project to go forward. Big business and government saw it differently. Both sides are waiting on future cases to clear up the confusion. But in Michael's case, it looked like a one-sided negotiation, so he figured he'd make the best of it. Balance. My grandfather always said there's no right and wrong in nature, there's only balance. And, and so, you know, it is our responsibility to make sure that there's not too much development, that there's not too much of a carbon footprint. You know, this, to us, as caretakers of the land and, and all that, was put here for us to benefit and enjoy from, to live a good life. Michael says they got money, about as much as they get from the government each year, plus some tighter safety controls, like a promise to use thicker pipe under river crossings. And he's not an outlier. So far, 50 other First Nations have cut a deal with Kinder Morgan. In a hotel ballroom in Kamloops, I see the company's approach in action. They've got posters and sandwich platters, and dozens of company reps in matching green jackets. Lots of locals here are looking forward to the project, especially if it means jobs. But that's where I met Lizette Parsons-Bell, 
She's a spokeswoman for the project. Do we have every single landowner that's in favor of it? No. But we continue to work with them and continue to resolve their issues, find out what it is, um, and try and come to a, a point where we're actually there is an acceptance of the pipeline going through their property. When Kinder Morgan meets with First Nations, it's the same deal. If they can't get to yes, maybe no doesn't have to be so bad. And I think it's a mutual respect, is understanding that not everybody believes the same things you do. When the pipeline first went in, it was a different story. Here's a company video produced in the 50s. In December 1950, executives and engineers of several of the major oil companies and of the Bechtel organization began studying the routes that could be followed between Edmonton and Vancouver. The pipeline company did work out deals with landowners, but they didn't bother to consult with First Nations. Charlene Alec wasn't alive then, but she's heard the story from Tsleil-Waututh elders. No, there was no consultation that happened. They just kind of came into the territory and told us that they would um, make our land prosperous for us and that we would see jobs come out of it. Kind of like what they're saying today. Now, an uninterrupted artery, 24 inches in diameter and 718 miles long, connected the Edmonton and Vancouver terminals. And through it, of course, the wonderful fluid that would turn the wheels of commerce and industry. But things are different now. Canada has a progressive prime minister who's promised to respect First Nations. So when indigenous leaders complained about the pipeline, they expected Justin Trudeau to listen. Instead... The government of Canada has approved the Kinder Morgan Trans Mountain Expansion Project. The project will effectively triple our capacity to get Canadian energy resources to international markets beyond the United States. Trudeau announced his decision last November. He says that First Nations are split on Trans Mountain and no individual tribe gets a veto. After years of trying to work with the government, that Tsleil-Waututh had finally run out of options. Except one. A few weeks later, they filed a lawsuit. It starts on this basis that the Supreme Court has recognized uh, that, um, that, that treaties did not exist here, that, that land was not ceded. That That's Eugene Kong, a lawyer for the Tsleil-Waututh. A key to their lawsuit is that this land was never signed over to the government. In British Columbia, First Nations in Canada just didn't sign a treaty. That weird bit of history has opened up a door here that isn't open anywhere else in Canada or the U.S. Um, and I think what we're seeing now is a culmination of First Nations exercising their rights, exercising their indigenous laws that were never uh, extinguished by Canadian law. Uh, or by treaty. Back on the banks of the inlet, with the pipeline just across the way, waves are lapping up on the shore. For Charlene, this fight to protect the water is just the latest chapter in the Tsleil-Waututh fight for self-preservation. I do come from a long line of chiefs, um, stretching back to Watsuk, who was, how would I put it in today's terms, like the wet, like he spoke to all the sea life. I don't know if you've read our, our big comprehensive assessment, the story of Watsuk and the Salmon. The story of Watsuk and the Salmon is a Tsleil-Waututh legend. The tribe included it in a report they submitted to the government because for them, it helps explain their unique connection to the water better than any official document could. Back when Watsuk was chief, around the time of first contact with European settlers, some boys, just being stupid, maybe a little bored, 
they were throwing rocks and killing salmon just for fun. So the salmon took off, they disappeared, and suddenly there were no fish to eat. Since Watsuk could speak to the fish, the boys asked him to apologize. He said, no, do it yourself. They walked down to the water, wondering what to do, when one heard a song in the wind and began humming. And the second boy heard him and began to sing it. And soon the salmon came home. And the children understood their connection to the sea. And that's when they learned to respect it. It's not just um, a political thing. It's, it's to the earth and to the water and all those living beings that are with it. Now Charlene and the Tsleil-Waututh are trying to spread that message. They've launched a media campaign to convince all Canadians that supporting Indigenous rights isn't just the right thing to do. It's also their best bet to protect the environment and keep big business in check. That's Reveal's Patrick Michaels. So far, no date has been set for the Slay-Watooth court case, but Kinder Morgan plans to start construction on the pipeline in September. In a moment, we'll come back to the States and visit a tribe that, instead of fighting energy development, decided to embrace it, and they've been counting the money ever since. Dollar, dollar, yeah, dollar, <laughs> dollar. That's coming up on Reveal from the Center for Investigative Reporting and PRX. X-Ray FM would like listeners to know about Bake to End Hunger, a Portland Pastry Chef Association's fundraiser to benefit partners for a hunger-free Oregon. Oregon now ranks sixth in the hungriest states in the nation, and Partners for a Hunger-Free Oregon believes that with help, we can become the first state in the nation to end hunger. Bake to End Hunger is May 11th from 5 to 9 p.m. in the Olympic Mills building. Center for Investigative Reporting in PRX. This is Reveal. I'm Al Letson. So I want to take you to another reservation. Now, this one is on the southwestern border of Colorado. It's a strip of land about the size of Rhode Island. It goes from desert to high alpine wilderness framed by snow-capped mountains in the distance. This is the home of the Southern Ute Tribe, a small Indian nation of about 1,400. It's a little different than the others we've been to this hour. Let me show you around. Walking through the Southern Ute main compound, you can stop by a well-maintained gym and its indoor swimming pool full of kids splashing around. The rec center here costs $9.4 million. 
You can visit one of the only accredited Montessori schools on tribal land. Here's a room full of elementary students sitting in a circle on the ground learning Ute. If you want to learn more about Colorado's oldest continuous residence, step into the $38 million glass teepee-shaped museum showcasing Ute culture, like in this video exhibit. The Spanish history and American history uh, is uh, like the skin of an onion compared to the ancient history of the Utes right here. Another video explains what pays for all this. Beginning in the 1970s, the Southern Ute Indian tribe began to invest profits from natural gas production on the reservation, profoundly changing the fortunes of the For four decades, this tribe has been fighting the federal government over oil and gas drilling, not because they oppose it, but because they want to develop the resources themselves. Reveals Aikshree's Kandaraja recently visited the reservation to see if other tribes can follow in the Ute's footsteps. Tribal chairman Clement Frost is a grandfatherly man in his mid-70s. He's wearing a sky-blue shirt, leather vest, and a beaded bolo tie. And when we sit down to talk, he points to my microphone. If I say I'm talking to this, Jen is my papa. You know, I'm saying I'm talking through this. We're talking through this microphone. That's what I'm saying, Ute, yeah. But there's no word for microphone. There are only about 100 fluent Ute speakers left here. Part of the chairman's role at the head of the council is connecting the Southern Ute's past to its future. Back in my younger days, when I was younger, you know, where it was a struggle, it wasn't like here, like we got now, you know, for young people to look at. We didn't have these things. So how exactly did the Southern Ute become a multi-billion dollar energy company? Well, it actually starts back in 1873. President Ulysses S. Grant established the current Southern Ute Reservation. The tribe that once roamed across all the four corners of the Southwest was now confined to a small parcel of land. But... When they placed the tribes in different reservations, I don't think they realized that our reservation was over a big part of the gas that's underground. He's talking about natural gas. A vast deposit of the stuff was discovered here in the 1950s. Outside energy companies came onto the reservation, drilled wells, harvested the gas, and paid the tribe meager royalties. That lasted for about 25 years, until Chairman Frost's predecessor, Leonard Birch, came to office in 1966 and decided to take the reins. Here he is in a PBS documentary from about a decade ago. So it was our thinking at that time we, we should maintain and control our own operation. This is the moment when the trajectory of the tribe profoundly changed. The Southern Ute put a moratorium on development for an entire decade, which was a big risk at the time, that paid off. Under Chairman Birch's watch, the Southern Ute taxed energy companies and renegotiated new leases the tribe collected more than $100 million in back royalties. And they hired outside experts, prospectors, engineers, and a lawyer who became one of the tribe's fiercest advocates, Sam Maines. Now they own hundreds of gas wells. Here he is in that same documentary. They own the majority interest in the gas treatment facility, and they're getting paid at every step along the way. 
He makes it sound easy, but it wasn't. They had to navigate the U.S. government bureaucracy and learn a highly technical industry. But once the Southern Ute cleared those hurdles, the chairman and their lawyer had built an energy empire. Here they are again in that same PBS documentary. Sounds like a gas well. It looks like a gas well. Looks like a gas well. It must be a gas well. It's a whole field of gas wells with giant pump jacks that look like huge mechanical drinking birds dipping down and back. Dollar, dollar. Yeah, dollar, <laughs> dollar. Each sip making the tribe richer. No, five dollars. Five dollars, five dollars. <laughs> The lawyer, Sam Maines, and the chairman, Leonard Birch, have since passed away. But those dollars kept adding up. The Oil and Gas Financial Journal says they're one of the largest privately held energy producers in the U.S. And the tribe's assets now are worth billions. Between 1980 and 2010, per capita income here more than doubled. And any tribal member who wants a job can have one, like Daniel Rohde. Where are we, and what do you do here? We are at the Southern U Museum and Cultural Center, and I do everything in the museum. I'm a Dan's in his 30s. He wears his long black hair and a ponytail. His arm is tattooed with tribal symbols depicting a horse raid. Well, there's a horse on there, and my Indian name is Horse Soldier, and the way you say it in Ute is Kava Surge. Dan's generation has really benefited from the tribe's new wealth. It paid for his college tuition the museum he works in. And he's got friends who work in the gas fields and want to keep their jobs. But still. If I was able to make decisions, I would veer away from it because we're just like raping the earth. And it's like we cannot keep doing this or else everybody's going to die. (laughs) It's like that existential to you. Yeah. Like life or death. Yeah. Dan's not alone. Since the beginning, there have been tribal members critical of energy development. And even though Dan doesn't agree with what his tribe's doing, he supports their right to make that decision, just like he does for all tribal nations. As I was walking into the museum, I noticed a no-dapple sign leaning in the lobby. That was the rallying cry against the Dakota Access Pipeline. And I asked Dan about it. So those no-dapple signs that you saw that's standing strong were actually made by some people that work here. Um, I personally made a couple of trips up there, and I felt super drawn to it. His last trip was during Thanksgiving as temperatures in North Dakota severely dropped and the protest camps were running out of fuel. And I packed my SUV full of supplies, and I made the trip up there, and it took me two days, and it was really cold. There was one camp that didn't have enough wood to go throughout the night, so it was kind of like they were really thankful for when we showed up. And I learned that the Southern Ute tribe lobbied against the pipeline at Standing Rock. So how does a tribe that's made a ton of money using a vast network of pipelines stand in solidarity with a tribe fighting against one? It's all about tribal sovereignty, says the tribe's lawyer, Tom Ships. The Southern Ute Indian tribe is very supportive of the concerns that have been raised by other Indian tribes. And and I can tell you, even those tribes that are against energy development on or near their own lands, uh, to the extent that that's consistent with the exercise of their sovereignty. In fact, the Southern Utes have backed off of energy projects because another tribal government raised a flag. I can tell you Southern Indian tribe was very actively involved in 
trying to develop a uh, wind project on, a, on another Indian reservation. Ultimately, it didn't work out, but the tribe looked at that very seriously and was very far along in the planning process before ultimately it didn't proceed. It's a tricky balance between business and respecting another nation's sovereignty that the Southern Ute have managed to maintain pretty well. They even get asked by other tribes who are looking to take control of their own resources. Here's tribal chairman Clement Frost again. We've had visits from other tribes to come to talk to us and asking us, how did you do it? You know, what, what did you all have to do to make it work and where you're at now, you know? More tribes could be looking to follow the Southern Ute model. 20% of untapped fossil fuel reserves in the U.S. are on Indian land. That could be a huge potential windfall for tribes. Even the Standing Rock Sioux could develop their own petroleum reserves. While she was there, my colleague Lee Patterson asked some of the youth tribal leadership at Standing Rock if that's something they'd consider. So if an energy project came to the reservation that would bring jobs and revenue to do all sorts of projects, what would you say to that? Uh, no. No, I wouldn't. Yeah, there's a lot of negative things that come along with those jobs. Sure, it create jobs and stuff, but there won't really be a reason for extra jobs if we're living in chaos. If the choice is between clean water for our future generations or um, a few dollars, there's, there's really no choice. It would have to be the clean water. That last voice was Dana Yellowfat. We heard from him earlier this hour. He's a Standing Rock Tribal Council member. He says this isn't just a thought experiment. Their petroleum reserves are relatively small compared to the southern Utes. Still, the tribe has taken steps to ban fracking on the reservation, and they've decided to leave what they do have in the ground. You know, I hope and I pray that we always have that foresight to, to protect what we have now. I want to make sure that my grandkids can go someplace along the river and see something that my great-grandfather saw without having to look at a big oil well. Back on the Southern Ute Reservation, there are hundreds of pump jacks and miles and miles of pipeline. Chairman Frost acknowledges that, yes, they have changed the landscape, but they try to make up for it. Sometime in the past, we used to do uh, wherever development work, we would go and, and ask for forgiveness to the creator for having to change what he has created, you know, how it looks. But they haven't had to ask for too much forgiveness. If you look at the Southern Utes pipelines, they do leak out thousands of barrels of chemically laced brine. That's the salt watery byproduct that comes from drilling. And when it seeps out, it can make farmland useless. But if you take the rate of spills from pipelines here on the reservation and compare them to pipelines across the rest of Colorado, it's only half as bad. And while the energy infrastructure does loom large across parts of the reservation, it's not everywhere. Right now, the west side is our major development. And the east side, the, the tribe has said, no development, let's keep that as wilderness as possible. You know, There's coal out there, there's gas out there. That's for the future of the younger generation. Whether the next generation of Southern Utes decides to keep the landscape as wilderness or develop it for money, that will be their sovereign choice. 
That story is from Reveal's Ike Shrees He worked on it with Lee Patterson of Inside Energy, who first reported on the Southern Utes in the documentary Beyond Standing Rock. Our show was edited by Taki Telenitis. Ike Shrees was our lead producer. The show was reported by Patrick Michaels and Lee Patterson. Thanks to Lee's colleagues at Inside Energy, including their executive editor, Eliza Barba, reporter Amy Sisk, and engagement editor, Amber Rivera. Some of Reveal's in-house filmmakers, the Glassbreakers, have made some great videos about the history of Standing Rock. Watch them at revealnews.org. Our sound design team is the Wonder Twins. My man, Jay Breezy, Mr. Jim Briggs, and Claire C. Note Mullen. Ramteen Arablui mixed and scored the show this week, and we had help from Mary Lee Williams. Our head of studios, Krista Scharfenberg. Amy Powell's our editor-in-chief. Suzanne Reber is our executive editor, and our executive producer is Kevin Sullivan. Our theme music is by Camarado Lightning. Support for Reveals provided